Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Many of you know we start a new season in the church calendar this year, this week, right? Advent starts today. Uh, and, and what we're doing when we're doing Advent is, it's, is we're uh, setting aside a season to prepare for Christmas. Now, Advent is not exactly, the word itself is not exactly a Christian word. Like, the, we, we've sort of taken it and, and we've applied it to something that we do in the Christian calendar, but it's not a Christian word. Advent actually harkens back to like ancient Rome and it's the celebration of an arrival of an emperor or a king. The advent of the emperor would be the arrival and the celebration of the arrival of the emperor. And so Christianity said, well, hey, wait a minute. We know that Jesus is the king. And as our celebration, we're celebrating the arrival of a king, King Jesus. But as Christians, we sort of do this uh, at simultaneously looking back and looking forward. We remember that Jesus has come, and we, so we celebrate that Jesus the Messiah has come in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah fulfilled all the prophecies and showed up. But we also do it in this in-between time where we look forward with expectation that Jesus has said he will come again. And so we stand in between the times, we look back And we look forward. And so Advent for us is a season of expectant longing. It's a longing for our king. The king who we know will return. And so in short, Advent is a season for hope. Advent is a season for hope. But as soon as we start talking about hope, what may come into focus for you is that there's a tension with hope. Some of you are like, there is? I don't understand. I'm going to explain it to you. It's a good thing you're here today. To follow Jesus means that we're people who have hope in every circumstance. Because we do know that the king is going to come and set all things right again. Right? And at the same time, we're surrounded by such brokenness. Right? Many of you are aware of this. Many of you went home. Some of you went home and you became aware of the fact, again, that your family is so far apart. Some of you went home for Thanksgiving and you spent time and you were aware of someone who was missing from the table. Some of us are just increasingly aware of the fact that there's so much division in our country and does anybody actually have hope that in the next few years that the divide is going to come together. Or or in the news in the past week, there's so many mass shootings that have happened. And so we look at what's happening in our world, and there's a tension that we're forced into. We're a people who have hope, and at the same time, we're surrounded by such brokenness. And it doesn't appear that it's getting any better. Do you see the tension that we live in? We're surrounded by brokenness, and yet we're people who always have hope. It's a tension that God calls us to live into. But the question I think many of us would have is, 
Is it even kind to be hopeful in the midst of people's brokenness? Is that helpful? Is it even possible? Is it possible to have hope when it doesn't seem like things are getting better? You guys are here, you're like, wait, this is supposed to be Advent. Exciting, happy. Don't worry, it gets there, I promise. Jesus has come. What I want to talk about today is what does it look like to be a people of hope when everything else seems to be pointed the other direction? I'm calling this message Walking in the Tension of Hope. Walking in the Tension of Hope. Let's pray and then we'll look at God's Word. So, Holy Spirit, we just acknowledge that you are present. And we acknowledge that we need you. God, many of us come into this season aware of so many things that are not right. And yet we're supposed to be people of hope, God. We know that you have come, Jesus, and we know that you will come again. And yet, Lord, we are in this space of tension. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give gifts of faith today, that you would give us gifts of hope today. God, would you enable me to speak as I should? I pray, Lord, that you would put your words in my mouth. Fill this place, Lord, with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on either side over here. You can feel free to grab one. I have noticed that people are contributing Bibles to that stack. So, you know, this is just sort of like a library. It's a Bible library. You can just grab one. You know, it's, it's like the little change jar, right? Take a penny, leave a penny. It's like take a Bible, leave a Bible. So anyway, Romans chapter, <laughs> chapter 8. Romans is this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church in Rome. It's a church he hasn't visited yet. And this church, he's largely dealing with a division between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. All the first Christians were Jews, but all of a sudden, people began to hear the message of Jesus who were not Jewish. And they began to respond to the message. And it created a problem. It's like, well, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? And so there's this, all this division, and what Paul says in this letter is that there's to be no division. That actually the church is a new humanity that God is creating out of the divided people. And the marker of this new humanity is it's a people who are filled by God's Spirit. That the marker of someone who is part of the new humanity is they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he, he spends a lot of his time saying it's the Holy Spirit that enables you to live as this new humanity. And so that catches us up. We're going to look at beginning at verse 18, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, here's what we read. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You know, when we look at this passage, I mean, many of you probably like, there's like so much in this stuff that we could spend time on, right? Like, as I was reading through this passage, I'm like, I could write like 10 or 20 sermons about this, like, and and touch on different things. It's an exciting uh, section of scripture. But what we're talking about today narrows down our focus. I think one of the challenges of being a people of hope is that we struggle with how we're supposed to respond when things happen around us that are contrary to the kingdom of God. Like, it's a struggle to find out how it is we're supposed to be. I think all of us feel the pain of the moment. You have a child who gets pregnant as a teen. You feel the pain of the moment. You have a child who walks away from faith. You feel the pain of the moment. You have someone that that is dear to you who dies. You feel the pain. You have a marriage that's crumbling. You feel the pain. It's a natural thing to feel the pain. And yet, even though we have this natural inclination to feel it, this tension of being a person of hope kicks in, right? Well, I can't give in to those, those inclinations to feel the pain and to go through the pain. What happens if, if I give in to that? Does it somehow negate me as a person of hope? Am I now just a despairing, hopeless person? And so from that place, we make a decision to ease the tension. You know, we start to like explain it away. Or we try to run from the pain, or we try to distract ourselves. We, we try to control the situation with self-talk. And when others begin to experience pain around us, we have to control that too. Because if you, if you experience this pain and you actually embrace the fact that this hurts, what does it say about us as a people of hope? And so you start to quote Bible verses to people, and you got to say trite things to try to clean it all up and make it all pretty before we leave. But that's not the biblical response. You know, the biblical response to brokenness is always grief and grieving. Look at verse 22 again. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first roots of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Skip down to 26. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. The response to things not being as they should is not to stuff it and move on. 
The response to things not being as they should is not to pretend that everything is okay or to self-medicate or to self-talk our way into happiness. The response, as Paul says, to things not being as they should is groaning. It's grieving. Some of you are in touch with that, right? That when things are not as they should, there's a deep longing inside of you for things to be different. There's a groaning, there's a grieving that comes. Everybody grieves. As Paul says, it's the whole creation. The whole creation is grieving about the fact that things are not as they should be. And he says, people are grieving about the fact that things are not as they should be. He says, God is grieving about the fact that things are not as they should be. It's the natural step to dealing with pain and loss. And I think we avoid it a lot of times. I think we avoid grieving to our own detriment, at least for a couple of reasons. The first reason I want to tell you that we avoid, uh, that, that it's our detriment, is that we cut off our ability to be present wherever we are. When you avoid going through grief and grieving, you actually cut off the ability to be present and clear-headed in the future. When you say, well, I'm going to avoid the feelings of pain, the feelings of loss, I'm going to just put them aside and I'm going to move on, what you're doing in trying to avoid the feeling of negative things is you're actually walling off the feeling of positive things. You're actually cutting it off because God's uh, way to deal with pain and loss is grief. It's grieving. You may be thinking, well, it's not like I lost a loved one. I just lost a job and I got another one. It doesn't matter what the loss is. Taking stock of what was lost and reorienting yourself to what the new reality is, is a thing that you have to do. Doesn't matter what the level of loss. Some of you remember, I mean, it can be really good things too. Some of you remember when this church was 30 people and we met in the train station. How many of you hands? Show of hands. All 30 of you, right here. You remember what it was like. We all, everybody knew everybody else, right? Like, and if somebody didn't talk to you on a Sunday, it was like, what's wrong with that person? And then you would go and you say, what's wrong with you? Some people said that, and then I had to clean up some messes. Right? But we would just go and talk, and there was this deep, like, beautiful, like, intimate thing that happened, and everybody knew everybody else. You remember that? And it was that way again before we got in this building. Do you remember we were in the basement at the Salvation Army, and we didn't have any, there was no sound stuff. Do you remember this? No microphones, no sound anything, no slides. We didn't have anything, Right? But this, the people who were willing to come back together after COVID, it was like 25 or 30 people. It was this intimate thing. And then we landed in this building, right? And this building, I think, is the blessing of God to us, right? I think it's a good thing. I think God has called us to amazing things in this city in Jesus' name because of this building. Nevertheless... What was lost was the intimacy of 25 to 30 people who knew each other deeply. And I think if we don't grieve the loss of the intimacy, you can't embrace the celebration of what God is doing now. 
So even good things. But expand that to every loss that you feel in your life. Everything, if you were uh, married and you didn't have kids, when you had kids, you celebrate the joy of the new, the new baby that you have, and at the same time, you grieve the loss of the fact that you no longer can be spontaneous. Right? Every good thing has a loss with it. And some things are just tragedy all around. When you lose a loved one, you can't just pretend like it didn't happen. There's a mark made on your soul that has to be healed. Grieving is a, is a natural part. It's God's gift to us to move through pain and loss. And if you don't do it, it cuts you off from the ability to engage fully in the future. You know what I love? I love when psychology proves the Bible. Right? For generations, like centuries, the Bible has been saying, you have to grieve your loss. You have to grieve your loss. That's the way to healing is grieving. It's going through the stages. You know what psychology says happens if you don't do that? It says you become anger and irritable. You get angry and irritable. Become, you become stuck in a time period. Unable to move on. You still find yourself calling that person who's been gone for years. Dialing the phone number. Not that anybody dials phone numbers anymore. You have an increase in fear and anxiety. You know, when we lost our uh, second child, the child in between the two that we have, the third child that we had, which is the second of the two that we have now, just for those who are keeping track at home, do you know I lived that whole pregnancy terrified that the same thing was going to happen again? Painful. Because I hadn't grieved the loss. You get stuck and unable to, to live out without fear and anxiety that something is, the same thing is going to happen again. Psychologists say that you would overreact. Anybody ever see this uh, level 10 response to a level 2 problem? That's people all over in our culture. Do you know our whole culture needs to grieve? Do you know the past two and a half years in this country has made such a mark on the soul of this nation that we're trying to skip right past it? We're trying to pretend like it didn't happen. And as a nation, we deeply need to grieve because we're all super irritable, right? Like you see it all over the place. People like level 10 response for a level two problem. They say that you find yourself into addiction and self-harm if you don't grieve. And the last one on this list is apathy, numbness, and depression. You wonder why the mental health in our country is the way it is. It's because we haven't grieved. And if these things describe you, what I might suggest pastorally is that you have an, a trauma that's not been grieved. You have a loss that's not been grieved. And you should take stock of that. But the second reason that I think it's detrimental for us to avoid grieving is because our evangelistic, our evangelistic witness is compromised by it. Let me, let me explain. Do you know the whole rest of the world has gotten in touch with the reality that grieving is how you heal from loss? The whole rest of the world understands that. It's this natural thing that happens. Psychology now is saying, hey, you guys should grieve. You don't have to have a belief in Jesus to grieve and come through healing. 
You don't even have to believe that God exists to grieve and come through healing. It's a natural thing. And when we as Christians stand up and say, oh, I don't get sad about things. I don't grieve. I have hope in Jesus. It doesn't make the world around us wish we had, they had what we have. It makes you look ridiculous. Because they all look at you and they go, I don't understand. We all know that this is how healing comes. We all know that God meets us in the midst of grief. Or even if we don't believe in God, we know that through the stages is how we get healing. What are you doing? You look like an alien to the people around you. People aren't going, wow, I want Jesus. That makes sense. You lost a loved one and you haven't cried once. You've experienced tremendous loss and it doesn't seem to have affected you with any kind of pain. It, far from making it look like something we, that the world around us would want, it makes us look out of touch and tone deaf if we don't grieve when the rest of the world understands that that's how it works. And the fact of the matter is this book right here says that's how it works. So not only are we like, do we look ridiculous to the rest of the world for that reason, but the very book that we say that everybody needs to read and believe says that's how it works. And when we stand up in the world and tell people, oh, no, 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 not me. I'm blessed and highly favored. I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Nothing gets me. It just makes us look ridiculous. Not to mention the fact that eventually you'll exhibit all of those behaviors that I just mentioned. Like eventually, not only do you look weird whenever you've experienced loss and say you don't feel any loss, but then whenever you haven't dealt with the grief of it and irritability and anger start coming up, people start going, well, wow, like you, <laughs> you're pretty weird. I need you to understand something. Grieving is not opposed to hope. Feeling grief and going through the stages of grief is not opposed to being a hopeful person. But if you don't understand that, you're going to look really, really weird and do really, really weird things when you encounter people who experience loss. We feel this need to polish their, their, their experience with trite sayings, things that you would post in a one-liner on Facebook. Don't worry, God has a plan. Do you know how much that made me feel better whenever we lost our child? Not at all. Not at all. People said, like, well, you know, maybe the, the child is a, it's, God needed them in heaven. I'm like, I, I kind of needed this kid here. It doesn't make me feel any better. We quote Bible verses to people and try to get them to just hustle on through this this pain that you're feeling because I, I don't know what to do with myself in that space. I need you to hurry on through. We need to button it up before this small group is over because I got places to be and I can't stand the fact that I might leave here and things be unsettled. Does that make sense? Listen, don't mishear me. God does have a plan and the Bible is always true. But we can't speak truth to people's pain because they just can't hear it. And because it's not really the call of God on our lives. There's a time for speaking truth. This is not it. A little bit later, 
Paul says this, Romans chapter 12, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We actually don't have to fix people. We don't have to speak the Bible to them so that they understand that they shouldn't be feeling the way they're feeling. That we actually can sit with people and grieve while they grieve. We actually can do that. That's an invitation of God to us as his people. And for some of us, the takeaway right now is that we actually have things in our hearts that we do need to grieve. There are some in this room, you have grieving that you have not done. And I don't even need to go further for you. Like, oh, I do need to feel the pain of that and go through the process that I can come out the other side. As people who follow Jesus, our response to brokenness is grief, but then it's at this point that we have a choice. You know, everybody knows that grieving leads to healing. You don't have to be a Christian for that. But it's at this point that you get a choice. What meaning do I want to make about the world based on the grief that I'm going through? Right? Don't we have a choice about this? We can just resign ourselves to like, well, it's just a closed system, and so some people got some good things, and it's my turn to get the bad thing. And so I'm just going to have good and bad, but it's all meaningless, and it really doesn't matter. That's one choice. We could become cynical, right? And just decide that I have to take care of myself and I have to become very self-focused. And I think this is the temptation for Christians, interestingly enough. I think the temptation of the enemy to Christians in the midst of all the brokenness that we see and experience in the world, the temptation is to cynicism. To just decide that I have to look out for number one and if I do anything else, it's, it's not good for me. <clears throat> but the Bible offers another way. The Bible offers hope. Look at verse 23. And I want you to just note the tension of this verse. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the Spirit, grown inwardly, we grieve, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see the tension in this passage? It's like we're, we're people of the Spirit, but we also experience the loss of the world, but we're eagerly awaiting we groan inwardly as, and grieve even as we wait eagerly. Grieving doesn't eliminate hope. The reason we have a hard time seeing this is because we don't use the word hope the way the Bible uses the word hope, right? We use the word hope uh, to convey something more like wishing. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> you might be headed to Walmart to try to get a few things, get in and out and go home, which right there is your problem. There is no quick in and out, right? But what you'll say as you're driving to Walmart is you'll say, I hope there's a close parking spot so I can get in and out real quick. And I hope they have enough registers open so the lines aren't too long, right? And instantly as you say it, you're like, I'm deluded, right? But what you mean is, I wish there would be a close parking spot for me. I wish Walmart would employ enough people and open enough registers that the lines wouldn't be really, really long. We use them interchangeably, right? We say hope and wish, and, and in our uh, vernacular, it's the same thing. But that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. 
The Bible speaks of hope with more certainty. Let me illustrate that one. If you hang out in this building all week, Monday through Friday, what you'll discover is that the U.S. Postal Service comes by at the same time every day. And they do the exact same thing every day. It's like around 10 o'clock in the morning. Abby can attest to this. They come down 8 this way, okay? They park across the street over there on the side of the road. They get out of the truck. They come to our mailbox. Then they go across the street to Delosiers, and then they get back in the truck, and they go that way. Stunning regularity. Like every day. You can see them traipse across the, the grass. Now, suppose I was waiting for a package from Amazon that I've been really waiting for, I'm really excited about, a two-volume commentary, just giant books to put on my shelf. And so there's, I'm waiting for this package, and I've checked my app, and Amazon says it's out for delivery today. And I'm so excited about the fact that Amazon says it's out for delivery and it's coming on U.S. Postal Service that I'm going to go stand on the sidewalk. And I'm waiting for them. And I, about 10 o'clock, I wander out to the sidewalk and I turn and I look up eight. And I'm looking because I know that the post office or the, the, the mail truck is going to turn and come down the street and park right there. And so I'm waiting and I'm looking down the street and the people across the street maybe might come over and talk to me, and maybe they have something sad, I want to pray for them, and, and I'm dealing, I'm, I'm, I'm living in their grief and helping them walk through grief, but all the while, I'm looking up the street for my package, and it's going to be so good, I have a space cleared for it. This is the picture of biblical hope. You see, biblical hope is that we're scanning the horizon, Jesus has come, and he says he's coming again. And in Acts, the, the angels say, he'll come back the same way that you saw him leave. We know he's coming. We know we're not going to miss it. And when he comes, he's going to make all things new again. We can be excited about that. And so we scan the horizon. We keep our heads up and we're looking. Even as we walk with people who are grieving, even as we experience grief ourselves, we stare at the horizon because we're not sure exactly when he's going to turn the corner, but he's going to come that's biblical hope. We're not hoping maybe he will come. We know he is. And we know which direction he's coming from. And we know that he's going to make all things new again. And so even as we experience grief and we go through the process and we experience the healing that comes as we walk with people through grief, we stare at the horizon because we know he's coming. That's hope. And we can be a people who Grieve on the one hand and yet never lose hope because I know my Savior's coming back. And so even though this thing feels so heavy, he'll be here. He's going to turn the corner. That's what the Bible means when it says hope. And so even though we mourn with those who mourn, and even though we feel the brokenness of the world, we do so as we stare at the horizon, knowing that our Savior is coming. It's just a matter of time. He's coming. We're a people of hope. It's hard to live in that kind of tension, isn't it? Because the things around us feel so immediate, and they feel so heavy, and they feel so big. 
And yet we're called to be this people of hope. And we want to resolve the tension, right? We either want to know there's no hope coming. At least then we can be here now feeling the thing and we can turn to cynicism or whatever we want. Or we want to know that if I just work hard enough, if I just vote the right way enough, we can fix all the problems. That's not the tension we've been called to as kingdom people. We fix all the problems. That's not the tension. We want to resolve that tension, right? Isn't that the challenge of praying for healing? God calls us to pray for healing, right? Jesus invites us into his ministry and says, pray for healing. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, proclaim the kingdom. This is what Jesus says to the disciples. And yet the hard part about praying for healing is sometimes it happens and we're supposed to be expectant for when it happens and sometimes it doesn't happen. Wouldn't you rather it just be it always happens or it never happens? Wouldn't that just solve everything? It'd be real easy if we just go, well, God's not in that business anymore. We don't have to do that. Or we just decide that healing always happens. And so when it, whenever we don't see it, it's either your fault or it's my fault. It can't be God's fault, right? It can't be anybody else's fault. It's the two of us. So which one of us is it? Can't be me. Must be you, right? These are the ways that we try to resolve the tension around praying for healing, isn't it? Because we don't like this fact that we're supposed to expectantly lay hands on someone and pray that they would be healed in Jesus' name, and yet possibly at the end of that, they're not. It's the tension that we're called to live in. So how do we do this? How are we supposed to go on living as hope-filled people when we're surrounded by brokenness? Look with me at verse 26. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The way to continue hoping in the midst of brokenness is the knowledge that the Spirit of God is praying according to the will of God on your behalf. That's how you bring hope to the midst of brokenness. And it's good news because the fact of the matter is, if you're like me, you struggle knowing what to do when you're faced with somebody who's got brokenness. Like, I feel like, I I don't know about you, but I want to fix it. Anybody else want to fix it? Somebody comes to you and there's sadness and they're, they're, they're dealing with loss and they're dealing with pain. And I want to say for sure that this person that you're watching die, they're going to be healed. I can just say it for sure. I want you to feel better, right? Or I want you to be able to come to me and say, my marriage is failing and that I could say for certain, no, it will be okay. Your marriage will not fail. Everything in me wants to be able to say what makes people feel better. Isn't that a tension that we find ourselves in? Somebody comes with with grief and loss and I want to make them feel better. But the challenge is, I don't know if that's God or not. I want to do what God is doing. I want to say the things that God is saying. I don't want to give people false hope. And so I struggle with this, like, is this me or is it God? I don't want to say what's just me. I mean, I do want to say what's just me a lot of times, if I'm honest. And this is the struggle that we find ourselves in, right? 
I feel like I want to say something. I'm not sure what to say. But what enables me to hold on to hope in the midst of brokenness in the world is the knowledge that the Spirit of God is praying for me on, in, in the will of God. That whatever it is I feel like I want to say, I don't have to fix it. The Spirit of God is praying for me. And he's praying in accordance with the will of God. This thing says through wordless groans, some people will go, is that in tongues? Is that just praying in tongues? All, most scholars would say that's not talking about tongues. I would say if you have the gift of tongues, it's a great place to start. That's a gift that you have. You don't have to figure that out. The Spirit of God will do that, right? But there's freedom knowing that the Spirit of God is praying in accordance with the will of God. When, when I don't know how to pray according to God's will, the Spirit inside me always does. Always. Always. And there's great freedom in knowing this. The freedom is knowing that I don't have to make excuses for God when it doesn't turn out the way I wish it did. I don't have to make excuses. I don't have to try to like say something special that gives you hope or false hope. It actually frees me because the Spirit of God is praying for me on my behalf. It frees me to show up and just be present with you in your grief and not feel like I have to say something to polish it up and clean it up. In fact, I can just be present and sit with you. The people who helped us walk through loss the most that we experienced were people who didn't want to say something to make me feel better. They just wanted to be there with me. That I didn't have to be alone. Everyone around you who's experiencing loss doesn't need your great ideas. They don't need your little slogans that will make it feel better. And, the, and the, the verses that you learn in Sunday school that you've memorized, those are all good things. They just don't help in the moment. What they need is somebody to be fully present who can count on the Spirit of God praying on their behalf. Friends, there's no other way to walk in tension of brokenness and hope but to be filled, immersed, and to drink deeply of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says here. The way we live in the tension, in the in-between times of Jesus' first coming and his second coming is to be people who are completely filled with the Spirit of God. Completely. That we could actually transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. We'd actually be those people in those situations. And Paul says there's confidence that comes from doing this. And I'll finish with this. Look at verse 28. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to, become, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What Paul is saying is, you can trust the Spirit of God praying and interceding for you to bring about the fullness of what God intends. You can trust that. You don't have to manhandle it. You don't have to make it happen. 
God knows what he's doing. Amen. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.